Episode 137, Rethinking Hospital Discharge Planning in a Value-Based Model. Today, I speak with Josh Luke, F-A-C-H-E, the voice of American healthcare and healthcare futurist. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Under fee-for-service, discharging from the hospital into various SNFs, LTCs, nursing homes, assisted living, subacute, long-term acute, pick an acronym, <laughs> facilities, has become increasingly commonplace. Interestingly, and maybe not surprisingly, depending upon your level of cynicism, under FFS, it could be considered very financially advantageous for certain healthcare stakeholders to shuttle patients between facilities. But value-based payments kind of puts the kibosh on revenue coming from this merry-go-rounding of post-discharge care. Dr. Josh Luke, who I speak with today, provides some keen insight here on why this post-discharge paradigm snapped into place to begin with. And he also gives advice to hospital executives on how to, as he puts it, discharge with dignity. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Josh. Really happy to be here, Stacey. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Why don't you just give a little bit about what you are up to right now? After the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, I founded something called the National Readmission Prevention Collaborative. And that was because the Affordable Care Act had a penalty program in there for hospitals that had excessive readmissions to the hospital. And we could talk more about that later, but that was a new program. There wasn't a whole lot of history or research or information about it. And from there, we formed the collaborative and we've had a really good run. Let's define the challenge or the issue or the problem as you see it. What was the consequence of the 30-day readmission penalties? There's a, a short answer to your question, and that is before 2010, there was absolutely no disincentive for hospitals to have readmissions because they were paid for heads and beds. And if we discharged you, we had no concern about what happened to you after we discharged you from the hospital. If you came back three hours later, we would admit you again and bill for you again, and there was no consequence. And as the federal government started to run numbers and look at how they might more efficiently provide health care to U.S. citizens, one of the things they saw is this excessive amount of readmissions. And then they, as they researched it, they realized, wow, there's no checks and balances here. There's absolutely no consequence for hospitals discharging somebody and then bringing them back three or four hours later and billing all over again. So the readmission penalty was put into place to say, hey, hospital A, B, and C, if your average readmission rate within the 30 days uh, just after discharge is higher than the national average, then we're going to fine you. So there is a disincentive now. It's not a significant one, but they've layered some more penalties on since then. So hospitals are definitely paying a lot more attention to preventable readmissions than they were prior to the Affordable Care Act. Is that where nursing homes start to come into the picture, that somebody somewhere figured out that if you discharge into a facility, there's less of a chance of readmission within the, the 30 days? Or where does LTC fit into, and the rising use of LTC fit into this equation? 
Actually, there's a lot of data that shows that readmission rates from nursing homes were higher than from those patients who went home. And having been somebody who was trained in nursing homes and as a preceptor to train other nursing home leaders, this is something that was very personal to me, but it wasn't a shock to me. Because prior to 2010, and even for a few years after, as we trained physicians on these new penalties, the natural reaction for a physician when a nurse from the nursing home calls is to about a patient is to say, hey, send them to the emergency room. I'll either meet them there or I'm out of town and can't meet them, so somebody else that's a doctor will take care of them. Well, now that you have these readmission penalties, the majority of patients in a nursing home on their Medicare benefit have been there less than 30 days, so they would all be readmission candidates if they went back to a hospital. And what you need to remember is readmissions are about going back to any hospital, not just the one that you were discharged from. So there's a lot of challenges for nursing homes because their incentives are not the same as hospitals. Nursing homes until recently didn't have any penalty programs, so to speak, pertaining to readmission prevention. Now they have a couple programs. They have their own readmission penalty, and they have another penalty, which I call the real readmission penalty. And that penalty is called Medicare Spending Per Beneficiary, MSPB for short. And that penalty was introduced in the hospital space four years ago and has been very effective, much more effective in getting behaviors to change from the hospital management than was the readmission penalty. And I think you're going to see the same effect in nursing homes, where nursing homes are definitely conscious of the readmission rate. But when they start to see that any money spent after discharge from the nursing home on patients is going to be counted against them, and they may end up having to pay a fine, you're going to see nursing home discharge patterns change significantly. In fact, I'll just cut to the chase and give it to you in short. When the post-acute MSPB penalty begins and the measurement period has already begun, you're going to see nursing homes start to discharge a lot fewer patients to home health services after discharge. And that's a big change from the present because myself and just about everybody else that's a nursing home administrator or leader was trained that we should try to discharge all patients to home health services after a nursing home because it's safe, it's smart, it's in the best interest of the patient, and it reduces liability. But also the term we like to say is, and is paid for by Medicare. The problem is, uh, just like when we were in college and our checking account was empty, the federal checking account has run dry. There is no money left. And they don't like it at all, the feds don't, when we say, oh, it's paid for. No, it's not paid for. The benefits are there for those who need them that need the services. They're not there to say, oh, it's there even if you don't need it because it's the right thing to do to cover our rear end to uh, reduce our liability. Medicare is not about reducing a patient's liability or a doctor's liability or a hospital's liability or nursing home's liability. It's about caring for patients and providing them services that are needed for them to rehabilitate back to their prior level of functioning. I just finished the book by Andy Lazarus, and it's called Curing Medicare. And Dr. Lazarus is a gerontologist. He had a a similar, I think there was a whole chapter (laughs) about the finances that are involved here. Home health is not paid for at any significant level. So if a patient is discharged home, it falls a lot of times on the family to figure out how to get a a home health nurse or, or how to buy diapers or how to, I mean, there's a lot of unanticipated expenses with having someone who cannot care for themselves in the home. Whereas if someone gets discharged into a nursing home or into a SNF or into a facility after the hospital, Medicare pays for everything. And it even gets more perverse when you talk about people who are in a SNF and then 
get discharged into the hospital. There's this kind of ping pong effect and they wind up with very aggressive care, which is fully paid for as opposed to a more passive, perhaps ultimately better approach, which is let the patient go home. What do you think about that? Let me address several things that you just mentioned. I call what you just described the fee-for-service merry-go-round, and that is when a patient is just passed around from a hospital to a long-term acute care to a nursing home to home, back to the emergency department, back to an assisted living, back to a SNP. It's just the fee-for-service merry-go-round, and a lot of the initiatives in the Affordable Care Act were an attempt to try to end that type of behavior because there were no checks and balances. In my book, X-Acute, there's a couple of chapters that speak to this issue specifically and how without checks and balances, physicians were incentivized to keep sending patients to different levels of care when we establish early on that no American wants to go to a convalescent home. And most of us have promised our parents and our grandparents we would never send them to a convalescent home. We start to dig deeper into the trenches of why nursing homes are training leadership not to use the term convalescent home, not to use the term nursing home. And it gets right back to the fact that A, none of us want to go. B, we promised our parents and our grandparents that they wouldn't go to a convalescent home. So they use different terms like skilled rehab or express rehab or any other term besides convalescent home and nursing home. I was actually trained not to use those terms. And when you go to joshluke.org, what you're going to see, Stacy, is a guide I developed called Discharge with Dignity. It's a rainbow-colored guide. It's being implemented in hospitals throughout the country. And basically what it says is, hey, we've always tried to, as hospitals, discharge patients to the right place for the right care at the right time. But what happened during the fee-for-service era, which I call the fee-for-service free-for-all, the fee-for-service free-for-all, which was really had no checks and balances, and as long as a doctor said somebody needed this level of care, they could go and nobody questioned it. And it wasn't hard to find a doctor that would say whatever you needed them to say so we could all get paid. But the point I wanted to make was this. Even though we've always said right care, right place, right time, we were sending patients to nursing homes just because their benefit covered it, their Medicare benefit. We weren't doing it based on need. We weren't asking them if they wanted to go home and letting them know the risk and the resources they would need if they wanted to avoid a nursing home. And the Discharge of Dignity Guide was developed to really end this type of behavior and say, hey, we're going to start here on the left side of the guide, and we're going to tell the patient, A, you have a right to go home. You always do. B, here are the challenges, risk, and resources you will need if you do go home. C, is this something you're interested in because your benefit will cover a stay in a nursing home and your doctor has determined that you could use uh, benefit from some rehab in a skilled nursing facility. This is where the confusion begins, where they don't always use terms like convalescent home and nursing home because they're trying to make the patient feel a little bit more happy about the fact that they're going to a quote-unquote rehab facility for two weeks instead of to a convalescent home for two weeks. But the reality is it's one and the same. Now, here's a question that I asked and that I'd like to put to your listeners, uh, Stacy. I asked this to the executive director of the Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center, Amy Bassano, when her and I co-presented in Nashville last year. Before we went on stage, I said, Amy, I have a question for you that nobody's ever asked, and I want to ask it. If a patient needs to be discharged to home health services after they've been in a nursing home for a couple weeks, did the nursing home actually fail in meeting their objective? And I always pause for silence when I say that because people have never heard that question asked, and I want to share with you why. I believe the answer is yes in many cases. Here's what I would tell you. My goal and my team's goal at every level of care after the acute hospital was the same. And that goal was really simple. 
We need to get this patient home to their living environment safely and independently. That's the same goal a nursing home would have and the same goal a home health service would have. And actually, they provide the same level of care. One's inpatient and one's outpatient. So I'll ask you again, if a patient needs to go home with home health services after skilled nursing, did the skilled nursing facility fail? And the answer I got was maybe, because we like to look at every patient individually, and there's a good chance that many of those patients didn't need to go to a nursing home at all. And the solution that Amy gave me, which I thought was great, was this. Hey, Josh, the right time to ask that question would be upon discharge from the hospital. If we've already determined the patient will need services in the home, even after they go to a skilled nursing facility, should we just consider skipping the skilled nursing facility altogether? What is inherent in the ACA or in value-based care and MACRA, for example? Like, what is going on now that this is starting to catch fire? That's a great question. So I want to answer it in two ways. The, the second reason I developed the Discharge with Dignity Guide, really there's two. The first I already covered, which is that we've already established that every American would prefer to go home than to go to a nursing home. So it's about the patient, not just about the provider. But the second goal is about the provider. The Affordable Care Act has seven programs that incentivize hospitals and ACOs and physicians, I might add, to send patients home whenever possible because they're going to penalize you for overutilizing. And that's the term we use for sending too many patients to higher levels of post-acute care like long-term acute care, acute rehab, or even skilled nursing. So the more you send patients to those higher levels of care, the more the federal government's going to penalize you under value-based care. The second way I have to answer that question is this. I don't think many of us realized until election night last year when President Trump was elected that value-based care, while part of the Affordable Care Act, was not synonymous with the ACA. And I don't think anybody would ever stopped to realize that. So the legacy of the ACA, which is undebatable, will be that it expanded access to health care benefits. Like it or not, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, nobody can deny that. However, we assumed for several years that value-based care was also going to be part of its legacy, but we realized very quickly after the election that value-based care will continue and must continue. There's not one person in inside the Beltway in D.C. that's saying, hey, we're going to go back to fee-for-service. Because again, the federal Medicare checking account is empty and still continues to run empty at an alarming rate. And we, under no circumstance, can go back to a reimbursement methodology that's, that does not have checks and balances. The current model of value-based care, while we're continuing it in many ways, Tom Price, the new secretary of HHS, has slowed down some of the mandatory programs but there has not been any indication that he or anyone else is in favor of going away from value-based care because there's just no way to pay for it. Therefore, that's where the sniff avoidance comes in, that if you're going to be providing value-based care, given the looming threat of overusing sniffs, that it's going to behoove everyone to send a patient home. And, and I'm following the dollar here very mercenarily. Although we might be getting into this industry for the right reasons, when you really follow the dollar in healthcare, the right reasons are nowhere to be found. And it's my goal and hopefully my legacy will be trying to get us back to a place where we can have a, a financial uh, reimbursement model where we can continue to look to do the right thing and still be profitable. But that can be very challenging, as you know. So uh, nursing homes, as we move forward, are really going to be more challenged. And uh, it's not just nursing homes. Home health feels like they're the one being attacked. Hospitals absolutely feel like they're being attacked. 
long-term acute cares are just arguing and trying to find a reason for survival because many people, myself included, say that, hey, in a value-based model, there really is no place for high-cost post-acute care such as acute rehab or long-term acute care because it's a managed care model. Nobody's going to pay for it, and many of us have lived that. And in really progressive managed care markets, Pittsburgh being a great example, you've already seen a number of different long-term acute care facilities close. And the reason is Pittsburgh nationally is a leading market for value-based care. They have two different organizations that want to be the best at value-based care and get there as quickly as possible. So let me just interject because in a way that's a little bit counterintuitive. I probably would have suspected the converse, that if you're trying to do value-based care and get people out of the expensive hospitals as fast as possible, that long-term subacute, you know, acute care would be important to have because you could get it at a lower cost. What am I missing? Stacy, you're showing your expertise here. I like it. Long-term acute care is actually not post-acute care, but we have pigeonholed it as post-acute care and therefore managed care organizations do not authorize it because it's 1500 bucks a day instead of four or 500 for a SNP. So there's a perception issue for sure. You could also argue that acute rehab, uh, just as each of their names suggest, acute rehab and long-term acute care, they are acute levels of care that could be really approached as discount providers of acute care. But the hospital leadership for 30 years has been incentivized to put heads in beds. I tell a story all the time, Stacy from these seasoned executives that I was taught from that run that I was taught by that run hospitals. I was blessed to be a hospital CEO when I was 32 here in Southern California. So I sat in these rooms every month and quarter and listened to these experienced executives. What I learned is this is all about heads and beds at any cost. Do whatever you can do to put a head in a bed. We don't care what happens to patients after they leave here. So to undo that behavior after 30 years requires significant cultural change. And here's the story I tell, and you should see the head shake in the audience because everybody knows it. If you got a call as the CEO from your emergency department doctor said, hey boss, I got a patient here in the emergency department that is a lower acute level that we could admit and we could bill $3,000 a day. But remember, we're billing ourselves now because we're being forced into accountable care organizations, which means we write the check. We're also the payer. But I do have another option for you. That facility across the street that used to call themselves long-term acute care hospital, but now calls themselves whatever they can to make us forget they were an LTAC (laughs) because nobody likes LTACs. Well, they say they can do this at half the cost and we can transfer them directly from the emergency department here. What do you think? Well, the right answer is uh, transfer them across the street at half the price because we're the payer. Well, not just because of that, but because it's the right thing to do, the lowest level of care. The real answer from any seasoned executive without hesitation would be admit them to our floor and bill the $3,000 because the ignorant answer is that's all they've ever known and they don't know how to do things any differently and it's been a real struggle to change that behavior. But I will tell you, this is why there's been such a slow transition to value-based care and this is why, unfortunately, Gen Xers like myself and boomers are going to get passed over in the next round of leadership hires in healthcare. They're going to go right for millennials because millennials were raised to understand that healthcare is about living a healthy lifestyle, keeping people out of institutions, and value-based care. And if I'm on the board of directors of an organization, I'm going to be the first to stand up and say that when we start the hiring process. I do not want to have to undo behaviors. I do not want to have to undo behaviors that are completely contradictory to the new model. The new model is value-based care. It's about efficiency. It's about using technology. It's about eating healthy, living healthy, and healthcare 
becoming one with uh, working out at the gym and living a healthy lifestyle. Millennials were raised that way their entire life. There's no way around it. And that's who I want leading my facility. What's this messy middle? Like if you're going to give, you know, hospital executives listen to this podcast as do payers. So what advice do you have? If I'm a hospital executive, how do I start thinking about making this transition? What do I need to put in place? Like what do I need to know? So there's a couple things here. First of all, control the ball. And ball control is a term I use. And when I first started using it, several people said, I don't like it because you're referring to people as balls. And I said, well, that's why I'm going to continue to use it because you'll remember it. And that's what I do, uh, Stacey, is I find provocative terms that don't need an explanation and people remember them. So ball control is about the health system, controlling the length of stay in the skilled nursing facility, controlling the length of stay in the home health, controlling the entire stay throughout the entire, entire circumference of the patient's episode. Because that's what it's going to take to get away from an episode-based mentality, which is what we've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years, right? Is control the ball and don't let any post-acute facility control length of stay because they've been trained to keep heads in beds and to overutilize and institutionalize. So we want to undo that. So that's number one. Number two, I'm completely baffled by the lack of inquiry, creativity, and desire by health systems to find new revenue streams outside of the hospital. You know, quite honestly, quarter million a year for a new program was more of a risk than it was a chance people wanted to take. Well, that's changing. But it's only going to change when these seasoned executives that were used to that mentality either change their perspective or move aside and let the next generation of leaders take over. And again, I'm Gen Xer and I'm proud of it. But I was poisoned by the fee-for-service era. Millennials were not. And those millennials have a distinct advantage as we look for the next round of leadership because if I'm on that board and many others I've talked to understand this, I don't want to have to undo any behaviors. I want somebody that's value-based cares their whole goal and they want to get right there. And, and it's, it's simple economics, Stacey. Obamacare was passed to remove money from the system. People forget that all the time. We needed the Affordable Care Act to remove health care dollars because there wasn't enough. And not only did they want us to keep the level of care the same, they actually wanted us to improve upon it while they spent less. But what I tell hospitals is this. Look, you've always been the big kid on, on the block. you got the muscle to flex. Flex it now because in a couple of years, you're not going to be anymore. The insurer is going to have all the power. Right now, you have the ability to go to nursing homes and say, hey, let's share revenue, to go to home health and say, let's partner in joint venture, to start your own non-medical home care, to partner with an assisted living, to start non-traditional service lines like a, a patient-centered medical campus, which is assistant and independent living for seniors, but it has a senior center and a bank and a cafeteria and your dialysis is headquartered there and your outpatient therapy is headquartered there. And on Mondays, you have a, a therapist come in for OT. And on Tuesdays, it's a dietitian, And on Wednesdays, it's somebody else. And you provide these services free to your community, to the seniors in the community. So when it's time for them to be told, unfortunately, you need to be institutionalized, there's no longer an option for you at home either because it's unsafe or you just don't have the family members or a significant other that can care for you. But the good news is we understand that every American would prefer not to go to a nursing home. And we have an assisted and independent living campus where we have nursing services available. Is that something that interests you? And then the patient realizes, oh, my goodness, that's where I go to play bingo two days a week. And my two best friends live on that campus. Of course, I'm open to going there. The hospital you see as being the purveyor of these healthy communities, like you see that as their role kind of pivoting in, into that area? Or did I miss something? 
No, Stacy, you're right on. Here's the deal. Hospitals are no longer intended to be uh, profitable business lines. In fact, they are the largest expense in the new business model. Uh, it's an insurance business model. And that's what the Affordable Care Act is forcing hospitals into is to become the insurer. So if you are now the insurer and your core business is the largest expense, uh, you need to take a big step back and reassess how you're doing things. Here's a couple of imperatives that, that no one can question based on the direction we're going. Hospitals are going to have less admissions, shorter length of stay, and get less reimbursement than they have historically. So with that said, where is the new revenue going to come from? Because hospitals can only cut so much staff before they get to what we call core staffing. Nursing homes have core staffing as well. They're required by the state and by law to have a certain number of nurses and aides. They can only cut so far before they're down to core staffing. And all of a sudden, one day you realize our revenue no longer exceeds our core staffing. What do we do? This is when you either merge or you go out of business. So the sooner that you can convert to an insurance model, which is think of yourself as a complete health system. Think of yourself as the ACO that you're becoming in a complete health system where you're not relying on your inpatient revenue to support the whole company but you're looking for new revenue streams like a patient-centered medical campus, like uh, partnering with skilled nursing, partnering with home health. And even though those are smaller incremental dollars than you're used to with new programs in a hospital, something has to make up for that drop in, in census, that drop in revenue, that drop in rates. And hospitals are not, in many cases, feeling that quite yet, but they will over time because all you have to do is look at every incentive in value-based care. It's about keeping patients out of the hospital and the hospital being the largest expense, and it's very clear the hospitals are the largest expense and not intended to be standalone businesses in value-based care. And is that what you meant when you said earlier that in the future it's going to be the insurer that has all of the power because providers need to actually become insurers, otherwise they're SOL? No doubt about it, uh, Stacy. and that's why you see hospitals all over the country applying for their Knox Keene license to become insurers and partnering with different organizations to become the insurer and have more influence because they've realized that uh, while they used to yield the power, the insurer is largely going to yield all the power in the models that we're marching towards. And uh, another thing hospitals uh, should be conscious of that would just accelerate this process is that our new Secretary of Health and Human Services is a physician. So when it comes down to it, do you think he is going to be favoring hospitals or physicians? I don't think many people would argue it's going to be hospitals. I'm not exactly sure of the nature of your involvement, but Advocate Health did a partnership with Abbott Nutrition in order to combat malnutrition, which is a gigantic social determinant of health. How did that roll out? The Abbott Nutrition case study you mentioned with Advocate is just one of my favorite examples of how a hospital can actually go, uh, without spending a penny, contact a partner like Abbott, who provides nutritional supplements for seniors, and develop a, a couponing program, which is free, that doesn't cost a dime to any of the patients, and, and reduce readmission rates to the hospital. And everybody benefits, because remember, the patient is the one who benefits the most in that situation. So the Abbott Advocate uh, case study can be found on our website. There's also some other good examples that uh, Stryker, that does a lot with orthopedic bundles, has done some great things with data analytics and other services that they have through their solutions department. So yeah, the Abbott Nutrition case study is a great one, and there's a lot of others out there as well. Well, as soon as we get off of this interview, I will be heading over to the website, which is just one more time. 
Well, nationalreadmissionprevention.com is the readmission website. And if you want to know more just about all the different things I have my hands in, it's joshluke.org, J-O-S-H-L-U-K-E.org. I would also encourage everyone to connect with me on LinkedIn. I write for LinkedIn's Healthcare Pulse. I write uh, at least monthly many stories that talk about a lot of the things we talked about today. You can see the Discharge with Dignity model at any one of those three websites, and I encourage you to print it out and use it. Give it to the hospital. Give it to the SNF. Use it as a marketing tool. It is absolutely the wave of the future and consistent with all of the value-based care programs, whether the Affordable Care Act stays or goes, and it's more likely to go. Nobody's arguing that value-based care is going to end, and every American would prefer to age and heal at home. So I think that's just a great model. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Josh. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.